Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, last week, last week, we began to chart some very, how shall I say, controversial waters, right? Hot with controversy. And what I'm referring to is really the biblical food laws. And kind of with uh, seeking to answer that question, that subtext, which is, does it matter to God what we eat? And what we did is we, we began our journey going back to Acts chapter 10. And Peter has this amazing vision. The sheet, he looks up and he sees from Shemaim from heaven, this sheet coming down. And this is, this is critical. It's a significant point to the vision itself. The fact that the sheet is coming from heaven signifies that this thing, whatever Peter's going to look at, this thing is from God. So he's looking at the sheet come down, much to his surprise, I am sure, as he peers into the sheet, he sees all these unclean animals. Things which he knows, being as a Jew, things that he knows he cannot eat, that he wouldn't go near. These things are abominable to him. They're an abomination. And so, to much to his surprise, he looks and he sees all these things. But what happens next would have definitely baffled him and did. Because then the Lord commands, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does he do? He refuses. He refuses to do that. Now, today, modern day Christianity, it looks at this vision as proof that clearly God has now commanded all men everywhere, Jew, Gentile, to eat food. It is proof that God has took that which is unclean, that which the law said is forbidden, to be considered abominable, and now it's pure. It's now clean. Peter's vision is proof of this. However, when you investigate Peter's vision, just read it. When you go yourself and you just read the text, you discover Peter's vision has nothing to do with food. Literal food. Has nothing at all to do with food. Has everything to do with the Gentiles. Has everything to do with the Gentiles coming into the faith. With the Lord literally tearing down the middle wall of separation where the circumcised had always looked at the uncircumcised as filthy, abominable, and unclean. That's how they looked at the uncircumcised. That's how they looked at the Gentiles. But God did a new thing. He did a new thing through His Son, the Messiah Yeshua. And He tore down that middle wall of separation where Jew and Gentile now become one new man in the Messiah Yeshua. And not just that, but we also, in addition to Peter's vision, we looked at some other evidence that commonly traditional modern-day Christianity will take you to to show that... All food, including pig and, and, and uh, uh, shellfish and alligator, horse, whatever you want to call it, they take you to Mark 7 to show you that these things are now clean. And we have that discourse where we saw the, the, the disciples and Yeshua's in his ministry. The Pharisees come out against the disciples. They bring this charge against his disciples. And remember, the charge wasn't about the commandments of God. The source from whence they were charging, the law that they were drawing from wasn't Torah. It was actually rabbinical law. Rabbinical enactments, takanot. These are the traditions of the elders. And what they did is they said, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. They're not allowed to do that. They're breaking the law. And to which Yeshua enters into this discourse. This beautiful discourse where he explains, it's not the things that go into man's mouth that defile him. It's the things that come out of his mouth, that proceed from his heart. These are the things that defile man. And then you have that prolific statement that is made. That we all know what it is. And then it says, Thus Yeshua purified all foods. Or some, some of the translations actually state, Thus Yeshua declared all foods clean. And it's passages like Acts 10, Peter's vision. It's passages like Mark 7, Traditional Christianity will take you to to support the ideology that it doesn't matter to God what you eat. Why? Because he's made everything clean. Everything is fit for consumption. These are the very same people that typically fall into the category that the law no longer governs us. 
The law itself has been done away. We've been set free from the law. Therefore, pigs, horses, alligators, uh, frog legs, and crab legs, these are all now clean. We can consume these things. But the looming question is this. This is what we need to ask. This is the question that needs to be investigated. Is that true? Is it true? Is what modern-day Christianity is saying the truth? Or can we for a moment, just for a split second, question whether or not these things are biblical? Is it possible that modern-day Christianity has actually embraced something that it was never meant to embrace? Is it possible? Is it even conceivable that modern-day Christianity has assimilated to beliefs that are contrary to what we read in Scripture? Is it possible that she has departed from her Jewish roots? Do you know anything about the working of Satan? Because to answer that question, you should know the answer to that question. Yes, it's possible. It is possible. Satan goes out for one purpose, to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's time we wake up, that we step back and we start analyzing the ways that we are worshiping God, our thoughts, our theologies, our ideologies. Do they line up with the Word? Because when you look at the MO, the modus operandi of Hasatan, this is what he does. Go back to the garden. Isn't it fascinating? What was the first sin? It was a food law. Satan went into the garden told Eve, did God really say that you shall not eat of all the trees of the garden? And she responds, we can't eat of the tree. This particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we can't eat that. And what did Satan do? This is a food law. We can't partake of this food. So he comes in and he removes the fear of God, strips it, calling the question, did really God command that? And then follows it up with the KO punch, you will surely not die. Go back to the garden and just ask yourself, the things that modern day Christianity is practicing, are they biblical? Because we should be able to ask these questions and we should be investigating these things. Amen? Because I can tell you, and I guess I'll just be right up front, Right, if you didn't pick this up last week, maybe you'll get it now. Right up front, I can tell you, without reservation, it does matter what we eat to God. It does. Emphatically, I can tell you that. God's laws are still binding. There is still to be a distinction between clean and unclean animals. And we as believers in Yeshua, if we are servants of the Most High God, we have dedicated our lives, picked up our cross, and follow Him We should want to do these things, not out of a legalistic heart, not out of the fact that we think we're going to earn our salvation, out of the response of that act that he did at Calvary. It's a response of love. I do it. Motivation is everything. Two men can do the same things, but it's the motivation at the end of the age that will dictate who is rewarded. The motivation should be love. You think about husbands and, and the way they, they treat their wives or wives, the things that they do for their husbands. It is beautiful when it's done out of love. But if you've ever seen a, a, a wife washing dishes resentfully, bitterly, it's no fun to watch. That's not a good situation. But a woman who's caring for her home with all that love, it's beautiful. Honoring her husband. This is what the Lord wants from us. The two could be doing the same thing. Completely different motivation. With that said, I want to begin today by taking you to the Torah. Taking you to the law of God, the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, chapter 11. And in chapter 11, this is the food chapter. And unfortunately, I am not going to be taking you through this uh, verse by verse. I, of course, encourage you to go and read it on your own. Someday we will cover it verse by verse uh, in the future, provided the Lord doesn't come back too soon. Um, But for today, because of time, we're only going to look at a fragment of it. But what I want to do is I want to take you there because you need to see something. There is a spiritual concept that is given within the food laws that is oftentimes completely missed, dismissed. You need to see it. 
Because what that's going to do, it's going to create some perspective to you. This is just another little piece of evidence for you to analyze when asking the question, does it really matter to God what we eat? So let's look at this Leviticus 11 verse 1. We read, now the Lord spoke to Moshe and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Now, one thing you got to understand about Leviticus 11, there is no stone unturned in this chapter. It covers it all. Every creation, everything that was created by God that is either in the air, that is on the land, or that is in the sea, everything is dealt with in this chapter. There's no stone unturned. And we find right off the bat, the first thing that is said in Leviticus chapter 11, he deals with that which is on the land. And it's interesting. What are we given here? We are giving characteristic traits which we are supposed to be identifying. This is what we're given. Characteristic traits that specific animals possess and some animals don't possess. In this example, we have the ones that are on land. If it's on land, it has to have the cloven or a split hoof, and it has to chew the cud. An example of this is lamb, sheep, right? Lamb, sheep, goat, a cow. A cow has a split hoof, and it chews the cud. These are clean. We can eat these things. Jumping down to verse 9, we're going to move into the sea. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever is in the water has fins and scales. Whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. What is fascinating here is that God intentionally designed. When he created his animals, he intentionally designed his animals. The fish in the sea in a very, very special way. They are designed so that his servants can identify them. What may be eaten and what may not be eaten. In other words, what did God do? He quite literally put a mark. He placed a very special mark upon those animals which are clean. And the mark is a testimony of two. One of the most fundamental principles, I know you've heard me talk about this several times, and there's a reason. One of the most basic fundamental principles woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture, it is literally from the front to the end everywhere, is that of the fact that all things are established on the testimony of two or three. I'm going to tell you something. If you understand this concept... I can speak from experience and I promise you, when you go to study the word with a humble heart, as you go through, you are going to unlock doors of understanding that you never had before. You will see things that you've never seen before. It's mind-blowing. Let me just take, give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. And I could spend the next six months just going through scripture, showing this scripture after scripture how this applies and how true this is when we look at any testimony according to the torah any testimony that is to arise it has to be given on the testimony of two or three for any sin or any iniquity you can't put somebody to death without the testimony of two or three this is the judgment that has been established by god This is something you need to understand. This is a testimony of two going on. When Yeshua sent out his disciples, how did he send them out? Well, he sent them out by two by two. Read Mark chapter 6. Why would the Lord send his disciples out two by two? Because he wanted to establish the gospel. All things of God are established on the testimony of two or three. You even think of the, uh, in Matthew 18, where it says two or three, uh, are, are, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, right? Two or three are gathered in my name. Moving on, tablets of the testimony. I always make fun of this one because obviously Moses could have went up and obviously God in his infinite wisdom could have put all the commandments on one tablet. 
It's very easy. It wasn't the scenario where his finger was just too big to make the font too small. That wasn't the scenario. The scenario was, is his law, the Aseret HaDevarim, was established. And when Moses came down, he had a tablet in each hand. Read Deuteronomy. He had a tablet in each hand because his law among his people, the very law that they heard proceeding out of the fire on Mount Sinai, it's established. You think about when that discourse between Pharaoh and Joseph. Pharaoh's given that dream. Go read it. He's given the dream twice. And the text actually says he was given it twice because the thing is established by God. That's awesome. Let me give you another example. A day is established on the testimony of two. Go back and read the creation account, Genesis 1. Read the creation account. And the morning and the evening were the first day. And the morning and the evening were the second day. Our days, the creator in heaven and earth has established the day on the testimony of two. You think about what governs our stars, what governs, what governs our days and our nights. We have two great lights. Again, go back to Genesis 1. We have two great lights. We have the sun that governs the day and we have the moon, moon that governs the night. The heavens have been established on the testimony of two. Life. Procreation, we've been commanded, procreate. Be fruitful and multiply. The only way that happens is on the testimony of two. A man and a woman coming together. It's how God has established life. It comes from his mind. This is his creation. Which then you come to the following and you understand all of it. You have the divine nature of God. You want to understand why all things scripturally, why this concept of all things are established on the testimony of two or three, why it exists throughout scripture, understand this. The divine nature of God. The reason this principle exists because it is a mere reflection of the character and nature of our God. It's reflecting into the word. It's reflecting everything. Every concept is established by this because it is the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh. You think about that. The three main events of this universe. It's the creation of the world. How did the Father create the world? Through His Son. All things were created through the Son. Redemption. The second main event. The redemption of mankind. How did the Father redeem? Through His Son. And then you have the third one. Which is coming very soon. And that is judgment. And how is the Father going to judge this world? Through His Son. All things are established on the testimony of two or three because it's the nature of God. It's biblical. It's His character. It's a spiritual concept. Do you understand? It is as spiritual as it gets. So what does this have to do with food laws? It has everything to do with the food laws. Because when we go back and we read Leviticus 11... Three, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chews the cud. Testimony of two. God established what was clean by his testimony. Something that we need to see. See, that's what's so interesting. Is that him, him and his creation and what he has created. The question is, do you see it? Do you see it? And do you confess it? Do you acknowledge it? Because if you do, guess what? What are you doing? You're acknowledging that God of Israel is the creator God. What makes God God? What makes God God is that he created everything. That's what makes him God. And part of this is confessing that which he created. You're identifying with it. Testimony of two. You go back to verse 9. All the fish... Testimony of two, they have to have fins and scales. You can't eat anything. It might have fins, but if it doesn't have scales, you can't touch it. Because the Creator God created it this way. To make that distinction. Testimony of two, over and over again. There's an interesting passage in Romans. I didn't put it up here. I'm just going to read it to you. For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Listen to this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Do you understand what that just said? All of his creation, this would include his animals. He has declared his divine nature. He has declared himself as God. We're all without excuse. We see it. But what's, what's the difference? Some have eyes to see and ears to hear. Some with these eyes to see go and they make the distinction between clean and unclean because the creator God has established it. And it's the confession of that. As a side note, isn't it interesting? Animals, man created the same day, the sixth day. The animals are marked. The clean animals are marked. The clean animals are marked on the testimony of two. Isn't it fascinating that man himself has also been marked on the testimony of two? Revelation fourteen twelve. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Testimony of two. This is the declaration of those men that are clean. This is how you identify the clean men from the unclean. They bear the testimony of two. Let me tell you, are you willing to recognize it? Are you willing to see it? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Something I think is worth mentioning. It's a, it's a, it's a misconception. And I, and I only mention this because you have conversations with people and you're like, wow, I didn't even... I didn't even go there. That is really fascinating. There's a common misconception that when the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai. There you have the giving of the Torah, correct? And in the giving of the Torah, all right, a lot of people believe that, well, that's the moment that God all of a sudden declared pigs unclean that he declared that the children of Israel could not eat shellfish. So, so it is at Mount Sinai that this division was made. I'm going to tell you that is not the truth. That is not the truth. God making a distinction between clean and unclean animals. Go back to Adam and Eve. Go back to Adam and Eve's children. To Abel. Go back and read the story of Abel. What did Abel do that was so honorable? It says he offered the best... Of his flock. Signifying what? Signifying that he offered sheep or goats. That's what he offered. The best of his flock. Not just that, but you just move ahead a couple chapters and we come to Genesis chapter 7. This is what it says. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal. There's an identification made right here. As Noah's getting into the boat, the Lord's going to destroy the earth, seven clean of every animal, a male and a female, two each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Fascinating. Here I grew up in, in Sunday school just thinking it was just one giraffe, male and female. One cow, male and female. This is what I believed. This is what I was taught. Yes, the animals went in two by two. But I thought that's all there were. There were just two animals. No, there wasn't. When you go and read the story, all of a sudden something magically happens. Truth starts to unfold. And you find out there was a distinction made in Noah's day. Did that distinction come from Noah? That distinction came from God, Creator, the very one who created the animals. Noah simply did what? He made the distinction. He made the distinction between these animals. I want to take you back to chapter 11 in Leviticus. There's one more thing I want to point out. There's something said in the closing of this chapter that, again, this is something, this isn't it imperative concept for you to identify with a spiritual concept 
And keep in mind that the entire chapter, right? The entire chapter is Leviticus. It's all food laws. It's all about talking about the animals on the land, in the air, and in the sea. And then at the closing of the chapter, we read the following. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord. Now, interesting, what does the Lord do here? He reminds them, I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It is a powerful statement, deeply spiritual. He reminds them, isn't it fascinating? He reminds them, you were in bondage. You were oppressed. I set you free. And why did he set them free? So that he could be their God. And therefore, something is imposed upon them. And what is that? It's the call. You are now to be holy as I am holy. The message hasn't changed. It's the gospel message. Our realization when we come into faith in Yeshua, when we declare Yeshua of Nazareth to be the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who can atone for our sins and forgive us. We make that confession. What does he do? He takes us out of Egypt, out of spiritual bondage. For what purpose? That he might be our God. And what is required? Holiness. Be ye holy as I am holy. Yeshua tells his own disciples, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Peter quotes This very passage, he quotes the very statement, be holy for I am holy in his first epistle. Nothing has changed. Continuing on in this closing, this is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So to simplify the closing of chapter 11, we discover that holiness is at stake when making the distinction between that which is clean and that which is unclean. And we are commanded to make the distinction. Again, why? Because he is holy. That's why. Not because you're trying to earn salvation, but because he is holy. Real simple. You're starting to understand that why maybe Satan would want to tamper with the food laws? <laughs> you understand? The very same reason he messed with Eve. He does not want us to please the Lord. He does not want us to be holy. He wants to destroy us. He wants to defile you and profane you before God. That is his victory. Do not give him victory. Now, I want to move forward as I alluded to last week, I want to get into Acts 15 today. And this is a passage, it's ironic, but this is a passage that I've been brought to many times actually to show, number one, that Gentiles don't have to keep Torah. And furthermore, uh, these discussions spawning, that food laws don't apply. There is no longer to be distinguished clean and unclean food. And it's very, very ironic because Acts 15 actually deals with that very thing. And so it's very peculiar. So I want to take you there. And I just got to give you a little backdrop first to give you some, uh, some insight into the environment, the atmosphere that existed during the day, what was going on um, that led, actually leads to Acts 15. When the Lord began to call Gentiles into the faith, something you need to appreciate is that it did send shockwaves throughout Messianic Judaism. Gentiles coming into the faith, the, circumcised, uh, the uncircumcised receiving the Holy Spirit, the Jewish people in the first century could not get their arms wrapped around this. In fact, it was, became the point of contention so much so that there was a division within the faith itself between the Jewish people on what to do with the Gentiles. There was mass discussion. And I'll tell you, if you just read the New Testament, you find out the number one issue of the day 
the number one issue in the first century, the hot point, the contentionous point, was Gentiles, whether or not they had to be circumcised as they're coming into the faith. Let me show you just a little backdrop. Going to Acts 15, verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here you have one group of people, they come on the scene and say, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. These are the very men, keep in mind, that know these Gentiles have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. They've seen it. They've seen the wonders that they're doing. But they're coming out and saying, well, you uncircumcised, you can't be saved. There's still, you have to do this. According to Torah, according to law of Moses, you are going to have to be circumcised to be saved. However, here comes the division in the very next verse. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. In other words, they didn't just lay back and go, oh, you might be right. They went to battle against these men. This is an in-house debate. They went hard at them. And they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Yerushalayim, to the apostles and elders, about this question. So this division was so great, they had to go up to the holy city of God, to Yerushalayim, to what I would call, what we would call the new Sanhedrin. Because that's where the apostles and the elders of the faith reigned. They were ruling from Jerusalem. So this becomes a court case, if you will, where they bring up both sides. And what's interesting in this case, as if you will, the Sanhedrin seated and everyone's going to hear on this case and you have all the elite, meaning Yeshua's apostles, they're presiding over this court. Peter stands up in the midst of this case in this court and he declares what the Lord has done through him to the Gentiles and how the Holy Spirit is coming upon them. After he gets done declaring what had happened to him, Paul and Barnabas come up after him. And they basically give the same story. They tell him the same thing. This is, this is what the Lord is doing. He's working awesome miracles. Paul and Barnabas actually physically witnessed the Lord himself circumcising with a circumcision made without hands, the Gentiles. See, because that's what the anointing of the Ruach was. You read Colossians. The circumcision, it's a circumcision made without hands. Completely done by God. And so finally, a third man rises. And this man is known as James. The brother of Yeshua, called James the Just. He's called, he's actually considered the Nasi. This is what you would call the prince of the Sanhedrin. So, an elite of the elite figures. He rises up and he gives the decision. This is what he says. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree just as it is written. It's amazing what James does. He brings his brethren to the prophet saying, Hey, this was prophesied of. Now we're experiencing it right now. A true man of God. This is, this is the nature of a true servant of God. Going and declaring, yes, the Lord has spoken this. And confirming the word of the Lord. Moving on to verse 16. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. This is talking about the death and resurrection of Yeshua. All right? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now, as James continues, he gives the decision. He renders the decision of the court. And this is what he says. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write... Uh, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. This is the decision. And we know this decision held because if you continue reading on in Acts 15, they actually put it on paper. And it's sent out to the world. First thing 
that needs to be addressed here is what is said in verse 19. And I'll highlight this for you and underline it. It says, verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Notice, we are dealing with Gentiles in a particular state. They're in the state of what you would call in Greek, epistrepho. In the Hebrew, the equivalent would be shuv or teshuvah. It's a state of turning. In other words, if I'm facing this way, this decision that's being rendered is to those Gentiles that are doing this. They're turning. If you say, Daniel, what are you doing? I am in the process of turning to God. This is what is being addressed. This is very important when understanding this ruling decision. This is for those Gentiles that are turning to God. Concerning these Gentiles uh, that are turning to God, we find in this state that there are specific commandments that are to be imposed upon them. Four specific commandments. Look at what these are. I highlight them. You have the first one, abstain from things polluted by idols. You have the second one, sexual immorality, things strangled from blood. When you look at these things, you have to ask, why these four things? What is it about these commandments? Where are the other 600 commandments? There's supposed to be 613 commandments in the Torah. This is how the rabbis divide it up anyways. Where are the other 600 plus commandments? They're not mentioned here. There's only four commandments given here. And I always like to make the joke, you've heard me make it, how did they decide this? Is this like a bingo ball thing where they have 613 balls and each one has a commandment and they turn the thing and poop, pops out. Oh, it's sexual immorality. This is one of the commandments we're going to do and we're going to do this three more times and whatever pops out, that's what we're going to command them. I mean, are we thinking this through? Why... What is it about these commandments that make them so special that they need to be instituted first in this state where these Gentiles are committing epistrephal, where, they're, where they're, they're, they're in the process of teshuvah, they're in the process of repenting? The first thing I want to mention here is that, ironically enough, what is actually being commanded here or imposed upon the Gentile is the very, has to do with the very discussion today on food loss. Did you notice... Three of the four commandments given here, they're all food laws. Look at this. I'll highlight these in green. You have things polluted by idols, from things strangled and from blood. It's referring to the blood of animals. Now, the specific food laws that are actually mentioned right here, they're not just any food laws. It's a specific group of food laws. And to help you understand this better, let me put up a graph for you. And in this graph, this is going back, if you guys remember last week, what did we talk about? Peter has this vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does he do? He says, not so, Lord, for I have never ate anything common, koinos in the Greek, or, or a karthatos. Okay, common or unclean. It's fascinating. You need to take the koinos thing to heart because what Peter did is he gave the whole of the food law. This is going back to last week. He gave the whole of the food law simply by saying, koinon kai akarthaton. It's the whole of the food law. And when you understand that concept, it's really going to help you here because we have koinos here. We have koinos going on. In other words, clean food. These three specific laws are explicit to how clean food becomes defiled. Did you know that? When you look at these laws given... They're all explicitly regarding how clean food becomes defiled. All of them are mentioned in Leviticus 17. All of these laws are mentioned, which is post Leviticus 11, and it makes perfect sense. You first read what is clean and unclean, and then what do you read? You really, then you need to read, uh, go above and beyond that, well, clean food, can it be defiled? Yes, it can. And here's how. You can have a cow, has a split hoof, choose the cud, he functions as clean food. We're, we're allowed to eat this unless that cow is offered to idols. If that cow is offered to idols, it is off limits. We can no longer eat it. If that cow has been strangled, even though it's been declared clean by the Torah, 
We cannot eat it. We cannot eat the meat with the blood. And if I just wanted, because I had a cow or I had a lamb, I can't pour out the lamb's blood and start drinking it. It's forbidden. Even though it comes from a clean animal, the blood is to be poured out on the earth like water. And this is what is commanded in Leviticus 17. This graph should help you understand exactly what is being commanded. How clean food becomes defiled. Understand, by commanding these three specific laws, you know, just as I, as I look at this, the apostles were in effect, they were delivering the whole of it all. They were just doing it in a very, very simple manner. You might say, Daniel, well, how do you derive at that? Well, it's because it's a Jewish way. It's the Jewish way of teaching. All throughout the New Testament, I can show you time after time, whether it's Yeshua or Paul, they would teach massive comprehensive concepts and they would bring it down to just an itty-bitty statement. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. All the law, this big gamut of Torah, all the Torah is fulfilled in one word. And then he goes to one verse in the Torah, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He just taught the whole law, a comprehensive, a comprehensive detailed book. And he brought it all down to the finest point. Yeshua, when the lawyer goes to him, which is the greatest law? And Yeshua responds by quoting the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he goes, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments, hang all of the law and the prophets. On these two commandments. In other words, it's very Jewish. It is typical Jewish behavior in teaching style to present it this way. There's much more going on here, and I'll prove this as we continue. There's much more going on here than what Gentiles typically pick up on, and I'm going to tell you why. They've thrown out the Torah. They've completely thrown it out. It's totally gone. Contrary to popular belief, when you look at Acts 15 and what is being imposed upon the Gentiles, you realize, number one, the food laws weren't done away with. That's the, that's the first thing. It's actually um, the thing that we're commanded to keep. The very first thing. It's the very first thing we're commanded to keep. And you just think about that. That's amazing. And then you look at where the, church, the state that the church is in right now and what is going on. It's the very thing that they're first to throw out. And you have to ask the question, why? What is going on? Well, we know the, the working of Satan... We know the twisting and contorting the scripture. Dig further. Dig further. Ask the question, why are the apostles commanding these upon the Gentiles? What is it about these specific things? You get a better understanding of what is actually happening here when you collectively look at them all together. And what I mean by is all four together. When you talk about the food laws, the things polluted by idols, from things strangled and from blood... Add also the commandment of sexual immorality. So when you look at this collectively, okay, you have the food laws and then you have sexual immorality. This is what you have, okay? At first glance, sexual immorality might seem a little out of place. Okay, you're saying the whole food laws, they come in, sexual immorality, it seems a little out of place. What is it about these that coincide with each other? Because I'm going to tell you, there is something of how they fit together perfectly. They fit together. And we find the answer to this by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And this is what we read. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Did you catch what Paul just said? Because it makes perfect sense of why the food laws would be commanded and why sexual immorality had to be imposed upon the Gentiles as they're turning to God. Look at what it says here. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is a very, very unique sin. It's one of the only sins where you can actually profane right here the temple. 
All the other sins we sin against our fellow man. And we do these things. But when you commit sexual immorality, something unique happens. You now profane God's temple. You want to know why these four particular things, the food laws and sexual morality, which really is a testimony of two. I mean, that's what's going on here. You want to know why these things were commanded? Don't wonder any longer. All four of these commandments have specifically direct consequences against the temple itself and with defiling it. Our bodies are supposed to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Our temples are supposed to be kept pure and clean. But guess what? If you eat things that are abominable in the sight of God, if you bring those unclean foods into the temple, you profane the temple. You commit sexual immorality. You profane God's holy temple. So you put this all into perspective. This is a gospel. It's going out to the four corners of the globe. Gentiles are turning to God through faith in Yeshua. And what is happening to these Gentiles? They're being anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh. Go back and read the Acts 10 account. Read what happens to Cornelius and his family. They heard the words of Peter and they believed. And because they believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. So what do you have to do? As you're Jew, you're looking at these Gentiles coming in and you see the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God, upon them. First things first, you've got to cleanse the temple. That's why these are the first commandments commanded in Acts 15. The first thing you have to do is cleanse the temple. Now looking at what is commanded here, going back to verse 20, was the intention of the apostles to just have these four commandments imposed? I mean, this is going into the bigger question of Torah and the applicability of the law. I mean, was this the only four things that they were to do? And I, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, I've had several discussions where individuals have come up to me and say, we don't need to keep the, not even the Ten Commandments. You don't need to do that. They dealt with this in the Jerusalem Council. The only thing that Gentiles in the faith have to do, Jews, they need to keep the law. But Gentiles that come into the faith, they just need to do these four things. At the same time, I had the gentleman tell me that food laws are done away with. And so I guess it was just one thing. The point is, is what I'm getting at, do you really believe that at this moment, see, this all comes to understanding what is being commanded here. Do you really believe that Gentiles, it's okay for them to steal? It's okay for them to kill? Do you believe that they can go out and take the Lord's name in vain? Because none of it's mentioned here. It's not here. The obvious answer to that question is, of course not. What is being imposed upon the Gentiles in no way nullified the Torah and in no way nullified the Ten Commandments or the requirements to actually observe them. Further proof of this uh, is just if you continue reading the passage, you see the intent of the apostles. Look at what happens here as we continue. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Again, look at identify a particular state that the Gentiles are in, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. And then the very next verse says this. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Moses. See, this was the determination by the apostles. They knew that as the Gentiles come in the faith, where would they be, number one? They're going to be in the synagogues. When? On the Sabbath. Who are they going to hear? They're going to hear Moses. They're going to hear the Torah. This was the natural understanding of the Jews of the day. That the Gentiles, what does Torah do? When you hear Torah, according to the Torah itself, when people would hear the Torah, what would it do? Nehemiah, read Deuteronomy 31, it creates conviction. Something the apostles knew a little something about. They knew the effects that the word of the Lord would have on them. It creates conviction. They're not worried about these Gentiles that are being anointed. They first want to get their temples purified and then send them on their way to go to all these synagogues because they're going to hear the law of Moses. They're going to hear Torah. And then conviction's going to take over. And it's going to confirm with the Holy Spirit. This, is, this was the plan. This was their understanding. 
wasn't to just deliver four individual little commandments and nothing else would be that that was the vision that was never the vision the vision is that they would go to the torah the very thing that we are rejecting today in addition to this what a coincidence i want to add something to this let me go back let's go back to here getting into the aspects of the legitimacy of the food laws, getting into the aspect of Torah itself. There's a, there's a principle here that you need to pick up on. Sexual immorality. This is all that is said in the notes. Exactly what you see here when they draft the note later on in Acts 15 and send it out by the hands of the apostles, such as Paul and Barnabas. These are exactly what it says, okay? You Gentiles. So they bring the council's decision. They have it in hand and they bring it out and they say you got to abstain from polluted by idols, from things strangled, from blood and sexual immorality. Let me ask you a question, a very, very important question. When you start dropping this document off and you start delivering this message all over the world to Gentiles with diff- that are coming out of different faiths and different beliefs and different gods and different cultures and you tell them, yeah, abstain from sexual immorality, I'm going to tell you right now. There is going to be very, you probably be hard-pressed to find two people, even in the same community, that can agree upon what constitutes as sexual immorality. I want you to think about that. In other words, what I'm telling you is sexual immorality is a very ambiguous term to Gentiles who are just coming into the faith without a source to define it. The source to define it was Torah. That's how you define sexual immorality. Because what constitutes sexual immorality to one may not constitute it to another. You, you, you think about this, is again, going into the, the need, the necessary, how necessary the Torah is for us today. Do you know that nowhere in the New Testament? Does the New Testament address sexual immorality on many levels? Absolutely. But do you know that nowhere in the New Testament does it forsake a man from taking a goat or a sheep as its wife? You might say, that's sick and crazy. That's just totally unnatural. Agreed. But you need to understand, I've actually seen it twice in the headlines. This year, where someone has caught having relations with an animal. I want to be very clear something. The New Testament never addresses that. It doesn't have to. But I want to be very clear for those people that say, if it's not in the New Testament, I can do it. Uh, no, that was never the picture. That was never the vision. That was not. How else were you going to define sexual immorality? It was only defined one way, going back to the Torah. And here's where I'm going to tie this in. Isn't it fascinating? We go to Leviticus 18. It goes through with detail on what constitutes sexual morality. And I guess he does something really, really peculiar. Jumping to verse 20, it goes through them again. But here's the thing. Isn't this fascinating? When you look at what is being commanded right here, go to Leviticus 20, oh, it goes through a list of detail of what constitutes sexual morality, and it ends off talking about distinguishing clean animals from unclean, and that you shall be holy to your God. The same. It's it's a mere reflection of what is being brought on the screen right now. Leviticus 20 is a mere reflection. It's unbelievable. Going through what constitutes sexual morality and then coming out, you better start distinguishing between clean and unclean. You are to be holy to your God. And so the moral of today's story is, number one, the food laws were never intended to be gone away with. And let me say this. Everything that is used as an argument, and I will be happy to debate anyone on this topic, Anything, any scriptural thing that is found in the New Testament that is used to argue to state that the Gentiles do not have to keep the food laws, when you go there and read it, you will find it's total fantasy. It is not what it's saying. Peter's vision is not talking about literal food. It is talking about Gentiles. Mark 7, it isn't even talking about meat. It's dealing with unwashed hands. I promise you, Every single piece of evidence, and uh, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you look at this, some people like to utilize that. Every time you go to one of these, you find out there's total eisegesis being committed. There's interpolation. People are reading into the text, they're fabricating scripture. 
It's not there. And it's inconsistent with the totality of the word. These are real things that we need to look at today. I want to close with this. Keeping everything neat and tidy so that you can make a distinction so that you have a mature heart about you and that you don't judge others in, in, in a wicked manner. Understand this, God is judge. There's no question about that. The Lord is judge. I'll give you my testimony. When I turned back to the Lord, following Him, there's no question I was anointed. I was anointed. I experienced the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, you know, is this feelings? Emotion? No, no. I was healed. I turned back to the Lord. There was supernaturally. And how I turned back to the Lord was supernatural in itself. But I was actually healed. And it was only with me on my knees repenting and just repenting for my sins. Being anointed, being healed. I want you to understand something. That day I didn't go up and stop eating bacon. I didn't wake up that week and the very next Sabbath I kept it holy. I went with everything I knew to honor the Lord with the limited information I had and I served Him the best I could. But I had that humble heart. Eventually what happened, I did what Scripture tells us to do. Seek Him. We're to seek His face. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Everything else in my life took a back seat. And therefore, it was only a matter of time before I came into that knowledge. And here's where I'm going with this. Don't be judging your Christian brothers as though they're going to hell. Judge the heart. Speak truth. Do not hide the truth. But be very careful on how you are judging. Because I believe, again, going back to something I said a couple weeks ago, I believe there are a lot of people in the church right now, they don't know about the food laws. They don't realize what Satan has done to the church. They're not, they don't know anything about the Sabbath. But there are authentic believers who have humble hearts and they're seeking God. It's only a matter of time, in my opinion, they're going to find the truth because this is the natural effect of coming into it. But Satan has created a lot of stumbling blocks. And so what I tell you is use spiritual discernment. Have a spiritual maturity to distinguish between the rebellious, those who hear the truth and turn from it, and from those who just don't know. I'm after those who don't know. We need to go and speak truth because truth today, unfortunately, is rare than fine gold. Amen? It is rarer than fine gold. So we're going to close in prayer. Father God, we give you praise and glory. And we give you praise and glory through uh, the beautiful name of your Son, uh, a name that is above all names, a name that, as I say always, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Yeshua is Lord. That day is coming. And there's no other name by which we must be saved. Lord Yeshua, we rest upon your name. We rest upon your righteousness, the works that you performed, the Father raising you from the dead. That is the gospel. That is the story. It's the story that saves us. It's the story that forgives us. Lord, I thank you for your truth. We live in such dark days where deception is the norm. It's like Pilate's statement, what is truth? We live in a, in a world that truth is a subjective term. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the mercies and the outpourings of your truth being spoken. And it's not just here at Corner Fringe. Your truth is being spoken all over the globe. And I pray that the people who declare your righteousness, that declare your truth, please raise these people up and protect them, Lord. And let there be light in a dark generation. I pray that your Holy Spirit be poured out in these last days as your prophets have spoken, Lord. Pour it out on your sons and your daughters so that people start prophesying, that people start repenting and turning back to you, leaving this very, very wicked world in their heart, cutting all the strings off and dedicating their lives to you, Lord. Make us useful vessels, Lord, because apart from you we can do nothing. Make us vessels of honor, Lord. Cleanse our hearts from iniquities, from covetousness, from idolatry. All the sins that are against you, Lord, that you hate and despise, we pray that you purify those. Lord, we pray for this nation. 
a nation that has turned its back on you. I can see your judgment in your hand coming upon this nation. Lord, we remind you as Abraham asked of you, will you judge the righteous with the wicked? Lord, I pray that you remember the righteous in this nation. Those that have given their lives and their heart to you, Lord, do not forget us. I look at these statements that I read in the Torah as the children of Israel are coming into the promised land. They're in the wilderness. They're in spiritual Egypt. And you declare to them, I will never leave you or forsake you. We confess that truth, Lord. You said you would not leave us orphans, but that you would come to us and that it was good that you go away because you would send the Holy Spirit to us. More than any generation, Lord, we need your Spirit to roam the fire of your truth, the passion for the Messiah Yeshua. We need that. We just pray that your glory fill this place. In the mighty name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.